this rat, this annoying, pee-eating fucking rat. And it brings up questions. Is this, is this something that you just want to go ahead and ask me? Because I'll give you the fucking answer, all right? Frank, look at me. Look at me. I'm not the fucking rat, okay? I'm not the fucking rat. Start with you agree there is a rat. You said there is one, all right? I base most of what I do on the idea that you're pretty fucking good at what you do. Sure. The main thing I think about Jimmy's character that made him successful is his resiliency. We fall down, but we always get back up. He taught me that, to never give up. Previously on Born Felon. Khalil Abdullah, why would he do this to Jimmy? What we learned later was they stopped Khalil coming out of his house and they told him, hey, why would you set Jimmy up? And he was like in shock and he was like, why would you think I set Jimmy up? And they said, okay, cut the nonsense. We've seen the videotape. We know it's you who sent the facts to Todd Kaminsky. And then I found out that he was arrested by Todd Kaminsky. At the arraignment, Todd Kaminsky read the letter that he wrote to him, stating that the money was mine. And at that point, Jeff Lickman called me and said, Khalil is your snitch, and Khalil is the one who's putting you in this whole situation. If you're keeping score at home, the Eastern District of New York City indicted James Rosemont on charges that he ran a large-scale bi-coastal narcotic trafficking organization that shipped cocaine from Los Angeles to New York City. Jimmy was charged with what they refer to as the kingpin statue, the biggest and baddest tool a federal prosecutor has in their arsenal. The Eastern District and Todd Kaminsky had managed to convince Khalil Abdullah, Mohammed Tef Stewart, Henry Black Butler, and Winston Harris to all become government informants and testify against Jimmy. As the kingpin, the government would have to prove a number of things in front of a jury. First, that Jimmy had five or more individuals working for him inside the Rosemont organization and that he was the principal operator. The second burden of proof would be to prove that Jimmy made an upwards of a million dollars as part of this organization. The thing is, was James Rosemont a drug kingpin? Was he directing, ordering, and managing a bi-coastal narcotics operation on the side while he was a successful hip-hop executive? Jimmy would go on the run after the indictment came down. Henry Butler, or Black, was a guy who, while I was doing a conference call, How Can I Be Down?, he came in as an investor with Peter Thomas. This is how I first meet uh, Black. Me and him gained a relationship through that because Los Angeles was the kind of place that was always hostile to me because of the Tupac rumors. Um, he was one of the guys that I would pretty much call when I got out there. So that's where really the relationship kind of developed from. Henry Butler was the kind of guy who would embellish and make jokes and stuff like that. But not only that, his brother-in-law was Lee Dance, 
who at that point had did Precious. He had moved away from the music business and started getting more into the film business at that point. So by the time he got arrested, um, it was a big deal that he was the brother-in-law to Lee Daniels. When you're dealing with him and you understand the relationships he has, are you aware that he's moving drugs or is it just is not even something that you guys even discuss? I mean, I, I knew I, I had dealt with him. I figure when Todd Kaminsky hears this tape because Muhammad is taping him, they are like, okay, so Black is his supplier in Los Angeles because of what he's saying on the tape with Muhammad. But, so, but when he gets arrested, they're telling him, call Jimmy and have a, a drug conversation with him. And he was like, I don't deal with Jimmy. I, I've never dealt with Jimmy like that. For, for six months, he maintained that. And then after something happens after six months, and then he becomes my, my big supplier at that point. Because the, the, the New York case, they needed a supplier from Los Angeles to make their case because they kept saying that, you know, for it to go along with what Khalil did, sending money to Los Angeles and, and leaving 600000 there for them to, to take and saying that it was my money that was going to buy drugs, they needed a supplier who that money was going to. And it's just so convenient that Black became my supplier. Here is Henry Black Butler and Leah Daniels, his wife, talking about their arrest and indictment. When I first was arrested, they tried to um, let me go right then. They wanted me to work for them, and I wouldn't. And um, I, I said no. And that just goes to show, you know, back to the point where once she got involved, my whole mindset changed. And I was arrested, I was in jail for eight months before I decided to cooperate. We went to, we went to court to plea out her five years and me 15 years. Mm. And they, the judge took it back that day mm. and wouldn't let us plea out. We had a deal on the table and she was gonna do five years. We wasn't, I wasn't gonna cooperate. They didn't um, indict me right away. And I was in New York and they moved the case to New York. Mm. And I was, they told me that I had to turn myself in in New York. And I was coming out of the courtroom. And the next morning, um, it was all over the newspapers. And it was at a time that, you know, my brother was highlighted in his career, probably one of the biggest moments in his career. Mm -hmm. And it was being overshadowed by something that was involving me. The headlines read, Precious Drugs and Guns. I did cooperate and the judge still didn't like me because he wanted to give me, he, he said it, he's, when he sentenced me, he said, I want to give you life in jail. So the judges really didn't like me. He just really, he said I was arrogant and cocky and I probably was. Um, it was a little harsh on me with me being a cooperator and me knowing what I've done in life, I mean, eight years was really a small price to pay. At what point does Black change his story and what does he change his story to? Well, he changes his story that he dealt with me in the 90s and that I would bring money to him in Los Angeles in the 2000s. I would bring money to him and he would give kilos to my brother for me. That's what he testified to. Henry Butler 
Pat was facing life sentence, and he did four years. So he was facing life in jail, and after changing what he has said to law enforcement for six months, he ends up doing four years, um, and now is able to move on with his life. Yes. All based on the story that he ultimately tells the U.S. attorney about you. He tells Kaminsky this story. He fell in place into the puzzle that they were trying to put together. And, and Henry Butler became my Los Angeles supplier of hundreds of kilos, miraculously. This is a key point. Usually when individuals are charged under the Kingpin statute, they in essence are the main suppliers. Recent examples of drug kingpins are El Chapo, or in the hip hop music world, many people will remember BMF, or the Black Mafia family. That organization moved close to $500 million in coke for close to 10 years. Jimmy is stating that it's possible the government thought that Henry Black Butler was Jimmy's connect, his source of supply. So what was it? Was Black above Jimmy in the food chain? Or was Jimmy orchestrating and commanding Henry Butler as part of the organization? This is where the kingpin charge starts to wear thin. Tell me about Muhammad Stewart. Tell me his story and his relationship with you and his involvement. Mother had rented a, a place of mine in Staten Island, so this is how I ended up meeting him. A um, few times he came to the studio, he said he wanted to rap. He was a kind of kid and he was a little, a little too wild for my liking, you know. Me having a good heart, I pretty much tried to, to curb him from, from the streets some. I never did anything with Muhammad Stewart. However, unbeknownst to me again, his relationship with my brothers were way more closer than I, I knew. And this is how he meets. Um, he meets Henry Butler in Los Angeles. Um, him and Khalil was also very close. Um, there's tapes of him going over to Khalil house. I never even knew that he knew where Khalil lived, but he used to be at Khalil's house. They used to have conversations. And this is why when Khalil figured out, or when we figured out that Muhammad Stewart was a cinch, this is when Khalil really started panicking, especially after my brother had got arrested. But anyway, he got stopped one time with 80,000 and a firearm. Um, obviously, he was working with my brother at the time. Um, they must have been watching them. And he agreed. They didn't care about my brother. They didn't care about anybody. He agreed to start taping. Jimmy's story is that although the government alleges that Mohammed Tef Stewart was a part of the Rosemont organization, Jimmy did not know that Tef was operating with his brother and with Khalil Abdullah and Henry Butler. Jimmy again states that Mohammed Tef Stewart 
wore a wire for almost two years. I was given all the wiretaps that were played in court, and I verified that Jimmy was not on any of those wiretaps talking about drugs or money. You can listen to one wiretap call between Jimmy and Muhammad Stewart as the fegs were closing in on the so-called organization. All that brass and all of that other shit. Uh, I, I, that's the shit that I don't want to fuck with. Oh, oh, all the black shit. But you don't, you don't fuck with him, right? You don't I fuck, fuck with, with dude. Him, but niggas, niggas lie, man. Niggas lie, especially if these are the same niggas that motherfucking got him award. The same niggas that want to see him And I know how bad them niggas want me. Well, so I'm just saying, my nigga. I, what I'm what I'm thinking is them niggas think that you my enforcement. I know what they trying to do to me. They trying to make me into a bar and so on and so forth. And as much niggas that been stitching on me, they ain't been able to prove no bullshit because them niggas be lying on, on a bunch of shit. But I know what they, they trying to do with all So then, then what? If uh, they do, then what? Yep, what I'm telling you, my nigga. I'm not afraid of they them niggas wanna say that I'm shoot or whatever, I'm not afraid of no young kids. Just that when they start putting that drug shit involved, they're gonna that's when them life sentences and them thirty years start coming up. I'm not trying to do that for shit I ain't doing. And when I say that, I'm just saying it's unnecessary bullshit. Like niggas are gonna lie. All that federal shit see nigga, it be a bunch of niggas lying. So he started taping me for two years, he started taping me. So they didn't want to give up who their informant was, and they squeezed Henry Butler until he would start saying that he was my supplier, which was a lie. Only person he dealt with was my brother. He never dealt with me like that. And the times he dealt with me like that was in the 90s when I met him, and he claimed in 2008 or so that he gave me kilos of, of cocaine. Muhammad Stewart to take me. They took pictures of me outside of the funeral home. They totally, I mean, totally disrespected my moment of grief. This guy had for two years tried to have a drug conversation with me and about murders and stuff like that. And I didn't have no conversation with him about those things. Him and Khalil was hustling together. He taped Khalil like how he taped Henry Butler and my brother. He taped doing drugs transactions together about shipments of drugs or money, collecting money um, for drugs that Khalil gave him and stuff like that. Same thing with my brother and with, with Henry Butler. Not only was he tape recording phone calls, he also was bearing at times on live. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And that's, he had a wire when he came to my mother's funeral, taping me and taping everybody at my mother's funeral. I needed to stop here because I needed to make a point. It is no secret that Jimmy admits moving cocaine in the 90s, not as the government alleges in the time frame he was caught in. You can't charge someone retroactively, but what the feds can do 
is create a very smart narrative based on leverage. Henry Butler was facing a life sentence. You heard him say that. Mohammed Stewart, with prior felonies, was looking at serious time. And Khalil Abdullah was also looking at a long time in jail. When those federal prosecutors come to you and they want you to snitch, most often, as long as you haven't murdered anyone, you're going to walk. Famously, there has been instances where serial killers have been let go. The feds wanted John Gotti so bad, they let Sammy the Bull Gravano walk after admitting in open court that he killed 20 people. The government wants to win. It's a headline. Henry Butler was not the headline. Jimmy Henchman, as a drug kingpin, was the headline. And like a big jigsaw puzzle, the prosecutors were fine moving the pieces around to fit the story they wanted to tell a jury. I'm, I'm going to go into um, Winston Harris now because this is how this whole thing kind of intertwined with um, Winston at this point. Because after Khalil is gone, um, Winston Harris is a guy who I knew was deeply entrenched with Khalil Abdullah. And, um, and, and, and let me just give you some backstory with me and Winston and then go into that whole situation. Um, Winston is a guy that I know since I've been like seven years old. Um, Winston is, is, is from Jamaica. Um, and when I was growing up, most of the guys that I grew up with were either Trinidadian or Jamaican. Um, in the 90s, me and Winston definitely, we, were, we, were, um, we would hustle together. Because I knew him so long, I always trusted Winston. So Winston was one of those guys who I would look out for and take care of while he was in jail. So his mother calls and he gets to immigration and asks, can I pay for a lawyer? For, um, for immigration for, to see if he could come out because he don't know anything about Jamaica. He only knows about America. And so I agree. I paid for a lawyer for him. However, they still deported. So when I get to Jamaica and I'm talking to Winston, Winston literally starts crying to me, telling me that he doesn't know Jamaica. He really needs to come back to America that it's like he's in jail, but he's just surrounded by water instead of walls. It really was touching to me, you know? So I, um, he said he needed some money to see if he can get back to America, and, um, and, and which I, I did give him the money, and he ended up making it back to America in the, probably in about four or five months after I had seen him in Jamaica. So, um, Naturally, when he gets to New York, he had nowhere kind of to live or to um, to work, to occupy his time. Told me he was going to get a job and so on and so forth. This call is from a federal prison. So what I, what I did was I allowed him to stay at my office, to sleep at my office, and um, to get income legally um, by working, answering the phones, cleaning up the office things of that nature when Winston got on his feet he um, immediately went back to the streets 
but you know, it's a guy who I know so long, so I didn't ostracize him. You know, I, I still would, would occasionally, he would come up to the office and talk to um, Him and Khalil had got together, and um, Khalil was giving Winston, um, he was giving them cocaine. When I found out about Khalil, I immediately, maybe two days after I got the papers from Jeff Lickman, I called Winston and I brought him the papers and I said, this is a problem, but I don't see your name in it. Obviously, it's my problem, but I want you to know what's going on that it looked like I'm about to be arrested because look what Khalil had did, did to me. At that point, I'm looking to really figure out what I want to do with my life. Do I want to get on the run? Do I even want to turn myself in? Do I want to send my lawyer to go talk to the prosecutor? Because this, it's ridiculous that what Khalil did, it's obvious a setup. And they, they, I'm sure they know that that's what it is. Jimmy Henchman has been accused for cocaine distribution. Jimmy, I don't know if you're out there right now, but just listen to me. Don't turn yourself in. This is your chance to finally make your mark again. The news that you've been linked to recently is, for lack of a better term, undesirable. You've been accused of being a snitch. Tony Ayo slapped your kid around a couple years back. And even the late great Tupac Shakur accused you of being involved in his 1994 shooting. This cocaine charge is an opportunity for you to get back into the good graces of hip-hop. We respect the shit out of Scarface. He not only distributed coke, but he did mountains of it before he was killed. So if you're already doing that, you're on the right track. But just listen to me. Here's what you do. You flee the country for a few days, give or take a few months at first, and you go hide in one of those Middle Eastern terrorist countries where they have no idea who you are. And you stay there, and you never leave. You just don't come back. I'm serious, Jim. Don't let the feds catch you. Do you have any idea how many Tupac fans there are in federal pound-me-in-the-ass prisons? Do you have any idea how much admiration you would gain if you just went away? Do you have any idea how much respect you would earn if you just never showed your face again? Do you, Jim? That I could really put this behind me and nobody else don't have to ask me about Tupac Shakur. I'm praying that he can he can rest in peace. So I'm like, anything liable to happen with me, with, with, especially with Todd Kaminsky, this overzealous, you know, prosecutor that's on my tail for so long. So I'm in Florida, I come back from Florida, I'm getting my stuff together really to, to leave New York. And there was a car that Khalil used to drive. Um, it was a, a, a Dodge Charger. So I kind of panicked because I knew they were would be trying to come arrest me at any time. That day I was gonna drive this car to Miami. So with the encrypted Blackberry, I, I sent a message to, to Winston. However, he's not answering, um, and I, I didn't understand why. And so I called my driver, Jason, and asked, did he hear from, from Winston? And he was like, no, I haven't heard from him. So I emailed him again, and he answers. And I said, look, man, I, I have one kilo that I found in the car. Come and get it. Like, you can come get it. Get, just give me something for it. Unbeknownst to me. They had already arrested Winston. So when I go to meet Winston, Winston has a wire. And when he gets in the car, I ask him, I say, man, is everything all right with you? Because I haven't heard from you when I was emailing you. And, um, you know, he, 
he seen the little dirt. So I give him the, the kilo that was in the car, and I say, yo, man, give me, give me whatever you want. Give it to me. He said he don't have the money right now. So I said, all right, man, I'm leaving about 5 o'clock. If anything, you could just drop it off, or I'll get it another time. And I drive off. He goes his way, I go my way. Jimmy was charged as a federal drug kingpin. I've never heard of a drug kingpin having to sell one kilo of cocaine so he could drive a car to Florida to go on the run. Usually, kingpins are able to charter private jets, have stashes of cash hidden, or just have cash reserves in case the heat comes down. Jimmy doing a last minute transaction doesn't sound like the maneuvers of what the government is portraying. It feels weak, it feels odd, was it a facade? Was the idea of Jimmy as a drug kingpin more important than the reality of his world? I go to my house, unbeknownst to me again, they're preparing a warrant for my arrest. This is the first time now that they actually have me and some drugs. One kilo. I got charged for a thousand kilos. This is one kilo that these people have that I actually put my hand, and I'm literally giving it to this guy, Winston Hammer. So they're preparing a warrant. I'm in my house preparing to leave. I find out that there's no navigation in the car. I walk to Radio Shack to buy navigation. On my way back, I see some police in front of my building, and I leave. I call the front desk. They tell me that the police just went up to my, my apartment. At that point, I leave. I get on the run. I went to Miami, and at that point, I started working on to try to leave the country. The, the only thing was that my connection to get my papers together it was all in New York. So after about three weeks or a month of hiding in Miami, I come back to New York to get my passport to leave. I had a three-day a plane ticket to leave the country in three days after I got to, to New York. My passport would take three days for me to get. During that interval, of those three days of me waiting for them to mail my passport, Tony Mott gets in touch with my son and said it's urgent that he have a conversation with me. And because I, I wasn't doing anything with Tony Mott, <laughs> illegal, I didn't have a problem with getting contact with Tony Martin. However, what I didn't know was that they arrested Tony Martin too, because one or two times he must have handled some money for my brother and they arrested him on it. And that was all due to what Khalil was telling me. So they arrested also Tony Martin. So by me answering Tony Martin's email gave them a way to track me. And at that point, I'm arrested on drug charges in Manhattan. Welcome to the Hip Hop Report for Thursday, June 23rd, 2011. I'm your host, Valeria. Founder of Zar Entertainment, James Roseman, also known as Jimmy Henchman, was arrested in New York this week and pled not guilty to a range of charges. The charges stem from an indictment accusing the mogul of distributing multiple kilos of cocaine. A judge considered him to be a serious flight risk and denied him bail. At the time of the arrest, he was carrying five blackberries, an iPad, two false driver's licenses, a fake passport, and a plane ticket to the Bahamas leaving June 24th. When they arrested me, I see
seen them. They kept getting on the phone, the agents. They kept getting on the phone. And um, I was wondering, like, what the heck is going on? I seen them. They were stalling to transfer me into to the courthouse. And this is the way you know that this this was all show for this guy. So when when we're leaving, I see them all putting on DEA jackets. And I'm like, eh, this is strange. Like, why are they putting DEA jackets? So when we, we go downstairs and they're about to take me in, they took me inside the garage and then took me upstairs. All of a sudden, I see the garage door open, but, but but before we go in downstairs, I hear them say, oh, they downstairs? They're downstairs now? Okay, we're ready, guys. Put on your jackets. And all of them is putting on their jackets and they smiling. And they're like, okay, okay. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? So when we get downstairs to the garage, I see the garage door open. Then I see the photographer. And I look at one of the agents and I'm like, I know y'all guys ain't serious. And then they escort me in front of the camera and give me the perp walk. And then what they end up doing is releasing that to the public to humiliate me. This was all for show. This wasn't by chance some photographer just so happened to catch. No, they, they, they prepared that whole situation. And I swear to you, man, I looked at this guy. I said, man, are y'all serious? He's like, well, you shouldn't have put out that statement against Todd Kaminsky. The end of Jimmy's business career as he knew it culminated on the same city streets where he made a name for himself. When you were indicted by the Eastern or Southern Districts of New York, as was Jimmy, your chance of winning at trial is roughly 3%, meaning that the government convicts close to 97% of the cases they indict. You ask yourself a question, when have you ever heard of anyone or anything winning 97% of the time. It's just bizarre. Jimmy wanted to go to trial. He wanted to roll the dice. The government, on the other hand, had at least five informants who cut deals and would now testify that Jimmy Rosemont was the sole leader and orchestrator of the Rosemont organization. But was he? Next time, I'm Born Felon. I'll tell you this, I represented people that lose trials and spend a very long time in prison afterward. And they always tell me the same thing. You fought to the death for me and that's all I could ever ask for. I can go to sleep at night, put my head on the pillow, knowing that my lawyer did everything for me and we lost fair and square. What you don't want to have happen is, is knowing that you got that lengthy sentence and that your lawyer got kicked off unfairly, dishonestly, and illegally, and I didn't have my best shot. I didn't get my best fair chance. It's gotta be killing him. I never thought for a second that we would lose that trial. And again, I've, it's not like some jackass lawyer speaking out of his ass, you know, beating his chest. I've won bigger cases, and I know a case that can be won. Sadly, I think the government knew it as well, which is why I got tossed.